From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Students have a lot on their minds as the school year approaches. My parents have underlying health conditions, and so if I were to be infected at all, they could be in the hospital, which really concerns me. A therapist and school social worker calls the return to school a cauldron of stress. What coping tools is she teaching kids? Then, a CPR News investigation reveals that for much of the pandemic, the state has been out of sync with the local public health departments, whether it's the mask order or contact tracing. Please don't do this again. This is incredibly counterproductive to confidence building and trust enhancement. And later, a father creates a 60-foot-tall portrait of his daughter in Colorado Springs with a message, take back the power. We'll talk with the artist about what he's trying to convey. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Kids have been out of the classroom since March. Since the pandemic began, they've been navigating disruption from online school to canceled sports and interrupted social lives. And for some, it's taken a toll on their mental health. Felice Fraser-Solak is a therapist and school social worker at Independence Academy in Thornton, Colorado. She says that students go back to school in the fall in the midst of the pandemic, and it'll be like learning to walk again. Please welcome. Thank you. You've called going back to school a cauldron of stress. Tell me more about that idea. What's in the stew for kids? Well, kids are naturally stressed out to begin with growing up, changes, trying to be in the in crowd, um, being popular, having good grades, pleasing everybody, and then tossing a pandemic and tossing everything else that came with the pandemic and the racial unrest and the politics without getting into politics, but the politics and not having anybody really explain it all to them what's going on, it just adds to the stress. So now you have this small bubble of cauldron and and now you have a full-on flame. Mm. They are absolutely stressed out. And you're a school social worker. You're also a therapist in private practice, so you've kept up with kids all summer. Yeah. How are the kids you work with doing? Um, they'll want me to tell you that they're doing great. <laughs> um, but they're, you know, again, stressed. And, and some of their um, previous anxieties um, have been exacerbated by the not being able to go out, not understanding why they can't go out, uh, not being able to do the normal. Their, their normal is not normal or more not normal anymore. Um, I have, you know, I was just telling you earlier that I had one, you know, one called me at one o'clock this morning, you know, just a random phone call. She saw my picture online. She said I looked friendly and she needed to talk to somebody. And for whatever reason, I, you know, decided that I'm going to pick up that phone. And sure enough, as a kid, then she kept saying she thought she was going to die because she woke up with a headache. And you how know, old is this kid who called you at one o'clock this 11. morning? <laughs> She's oh, no. 11 years old. You know, they uh, most of the kids I'm dealing with are. Um, they, they're, they're tr- trying to recreate their own normal. And again, they don't understand the magnitude of what's going on in, in spite of everything. Just look at it from a kid's perspective. They want to go out. They want to party. They want to have fun. They want to they want to do whatever and they can't. And, and that's that's creating um, some underlying issues for them right now. Can you give me some other examples about how kids stress is manifesting during the pandemic? Obviously, calling you at one in the morning thinking she's going to die is a big one. Yeah, well, I, I had a, uh, another kid when I uh, reconnected with him on Zoom because I'm on online right now, um, and he knows me. He's He's been with me for years. And 
um, he, he kept saying, well, how do I know you're real? How do I know you're not CGI? How do I know that you're not created? And I had to, well, I didn't have to, but it, I, I knew it was for him to walk around the house, show him my dogs, you know, look at my car. You've seen my car before. This is what, <laughs> this is my car. Um, I have another one that, that thinks that it, it's a hoax and that she thinks her parents don't want her to go out. And so they've created this whole big pandemic and she feels like she's being isolated and can't get a boyfriend and, and, you know, she's not good enough to be out. And I had to keep reassuring her, oh, no, sweetie, you can, it's not you, you're perfect. It's, it's, it's what's going on around you. That's, and she can't grasp it. She's having a hard time grasping it. And what are the feelings they're describing? Is there depression, anxiety, I'm it's, imagining? It, de- depression, anxiety, can't sleep, uh, sleeping way too much, not eating. The not eating part is, is huge. They're, they're not eating, um, um, not I, not paranoid, but this—it's like a horror movie. You know, when you hear the 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 music coming, the horror movie, you know something bad's coming. Well, it's like they have this constant music playing in their head, but nothing bad has happened yet. In in their world, nothing bad has happened, so they can't understand why they're in this this they're stuck in this moment. They they're they're struggling with it. And it's this big buildup that's been happening uh, for absolutely months now. for for months. And and even one I had said, um, she said, "Do you think it's going to be the same?" And and I couldn't answer that for her, you know, because I said, "What's same?" You know, and I had to get into a philosophical question about, well, you know, when you were a baby, you didn't know how to eat by yourself, and now you do. So we're in a constant state of change, you know, just to put a positive spin on it, um, normalizing she, that change, yeah, d- definitely normalizing it, but. You know, she didn't believe me. <laughs> so obviously it's not just the classes that are stressful right now. You mentioned this. There are protests against police yes. brutality, the pandemic's affecting the economy, yes. and some of their parents may have lost jobs. Are students also talking with you about those stressors? They are. Um, and they don't know how to articulate it. And so they just kept seeing stuff. This All this stuff is going on. And so the, the, the first step for me has been getting them to tell me what this stuff is. And let's let's pick it apart and, and let's let's, you know, let's munch on the little stuff and then let's get to the main course once we've digested the little stuff. And that way it gives them a little time to kind of figure out how they're feeling, identify what they're feeling. And then, you know, if there's they're struggling with the feeling, let's let's process the feeling and let's move on to the bigger stuff. Mm. You know, it's 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 all a process. And and. The hard part is that they're. I keep saying I. I keep saying they're struggling with it because I get phone calls all night, every night, in the middle of the night, and you know sometimes I just don't know what to say to them, and I feel like I go in not therapist mode, but mom mode. It's gonna be all right. This is what you have to do. You know what you have to do to stay safe. Do all of that, and I and I guarantee you that we'll talk tomorrow. Oh, so there's a lot of reassurance. Absolute there. reassurance. Re- nothing but reassurance. Validate, validate, reassure, reassure, reassure. Yeah. And since the beginning of the pandemic, we've heard from mental health professionals, they expect to see a wave of people dealing with mental health ramifications of the tumultuous time in general. Are you seeing that wave now? Oh, we're in a tsunami. This is not a wave. This is (laughs) the wave hit when we shut down on March 13th. You know, that was that was the little ebb and flow. This is this is a, a I think we're distracted with all the external stuff. You know, just like you said, protesting COVID not working, the economy, that the, the wave already hit us. And, and you have kids who are um, looking for an outlet, 
but because they can't go out or because they don't have access or because, you know, the, the therapists, social workers, everyone, they're all uh, overwhelmed with the with the wave that we're going on around. This is just the bubble underneath the surface. This is, and it's it's a big bubble. This is, you know, I, I expect that when school starts that we're going to see a lot of outward manifestation of some of this. So let's talk about the start of school. Do you expect that, how do you expect that that's going to play into mental health for students? Do you think that it could be returned to some sort of schedule that could provide some stability or could it bring some of the anxieties to a head? I, I think it's going to be deal of the above. Um, you, you're going to have a um, the structure, you know, because they get to see their regular, their parents, their teachers, their social workers, their admins. They get to that. That's normal. Um, but I think what you're going to see in that normalcy is that they're comfortable with those people. And so all of that stuff that's been bubbling in them, they're going to we're, we're going to see it in, you know, oppositional behavior or what they what people would call oppositional behavior. We're going to see it in tears or not wanting to do work or just wanting to sit and talk. And to be perfectly honest, as much as I love academia, if a kid wants to sit and talk to me for eight hours for a day, then I'm going to sit and talk to them for eight hours for the day because we left March 13th with, with no contact or minimal contact. And um, I think we owe them that, you know. And you said that going back to school for some students, it could be like learning to walk again. Tell me more about that idea. Um, that's for the kids because, you know, Teens, you know, that's that teens, the, the younger kids, they, they were learning to walk socially and academically when they were in the school and they got they got hit in the kneecaps with with COVID. And so everything that they learned or were trying to learn at the time um, is kind of gone for them. Um, and, you know, we're struggling with open the schools, don't open the schools, hybrid, online, and that kind of stuff. And I, I think I explained this to you before. We have to trust that, you know, when babies are learning how to walk, they, they, they're holding on to something, they fall down, um, then they stand back up, and they'll take one step away, and then they'll look behind to make sure whoever their caregiver is there, and then they go back and they touch them, and then they take two steps away until until they're you know, running away from you. But it, it, it's it's those intimate steps in between. Um, and going back to school is going to be the same thing because we don't have a normal right now. Our normal is on the computer. And, and you know, it's so anticlimactic when you just hit a button that says end meeting and everybody's gone. And so now we have to kind of retrain their brains or retrain their, them to, you know, identify what they're feeling at the time to say, this is our normal. We still have standards. I still want you to behave. I don't want you to yell at me. I don't want you to curse at me. But still understand that that's, that's going to be a visceral response to upsetting their original normal in the first place. It's it's. It's a mishmash. <laughs> and we've heard some from some parents that they feel like they've seen their kids sort of go backwards during the summer and that they've sort of unlearned some behaviors that they'd really worked on. Is that something that you're seeing or something that seems like you'd expect? Well, we'll expect it. I mean, that's that's natural course of progression. You get a summer break, you'll see some regression. You come back in the fall, you reinforce or, or you know, reinforce what you've already learned or revisit what you've already learned and then teach them a new skill to move them a little further. So that, that's that's going to come with the territory. So let's go back to this idea that the pandemic brings with it a wave of mental health challenges or even a tsunami. 
More students may benefit from professional help, and earlier this summer I spoke with Maddie. She's a 15-year-old student from Denver. She's been going to therapy for anxiety for several years. She says she feels so out of control during the pandemic, but the coping skills that she's learned in therapy, like focusing her attention on helping people or other activities that make her happy, they've been really important. She had this advice for other kids who are seeking mental health counseling and treatment for the first time. I feel like even today, we still have such a stigma around mental health and just recognizing that it's okay to not be okay and that getting treatment is normal and it's something everyone goes through at one point or another. Felice, what advice do you have students who may be struggling with their mental health for the first time during the pandemic? Uh, Talk to anybody. Talk to your parents. Talk to your sister. Talk to your brother. Talk to anybody. Talk, 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 talk. Um, the more the more you talk, the, the the you might not immediately feel better, but you don't have all this stuff churning inside with nowhere to go. Op- open your mouth. It is okay to be not okay, and it's okay to need help. And we've been talking a lot about going back to school, but it's hard to say what getting ready for school may mean. Some Colorado school districts are planning for in-person classes. Others will continue virtual learning. We reached out to Ethan Reed. He's a rising senior at Legend High School in Parker, Colorado. Reed was appointed to a Douglas County task force charged with designing its reopening plan. And the district has since decided on a hybrid model that includes in-classroom learning and online learning. Reed says he's okay with the decision, but he is concerned about a recent rise in cases and hospitalizations. I've actually been more on the side of why don't we just do remote learning until Labor Day just to see where things are in the state and locally. I just think it would be smart to kind of wait that out. Reed also has a very personal reason for his concern. My parents have underlying health conditions. And so if I were to be infected at all, they could be in the hospital, which really concerns me. Felice, Adams 12, the district that you work for, has said that it will announce its back-to-school plans later this week. How are you thinking about the ways different approaches to school in person, online, hybrid, could affect students' mental health? Well, a lot of... A lot of the kids, um, I know from being online back in the the spring of last year, the last school year, um, struggled with the with the online approach. Um, it was easier for them to escape because they were already home, or easier for them to deflect with anything that de- um, deflect from anything that was uncomfortable because they were surrounded by the familiar things. But I think we have a better grasp on what we need to do, and so. Um, the phone calls, they can't avoid phone calls. They were going to keep after them, keep calling them, and keep letting them know that we're here. And at, at some point, they will take advantage of us and, and talk to us and, and let us know how they feel. Well, Felice, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Felice Fraser Solak is a therapist and school social worker at Independence Academy in Thornton, Colorado. When we come back, a CPR News investigation finds turmoil in the state's public health department as it tries to stay a step ahead of the novel coronavirus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org.
People who have trained for decades in disease and disaster response who were supposed to lead the state through a pandemic have left Colorado's public health department. A CPR news investigation found turmoil before and after the first case of COVID-19. Here's CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus. On a sweltering day in early July, cars lined up at the Pepsi Center. The mass testing site for COVID-19 has faced shortages of supplies, and some people have had to wait weeks for their results. Armando Gennaro just took a test. His fiance's father has cancer, and Gennaro wants to be sure that he doesn't have COVID and pass it to him. I told him that Colorado is ranked at or near the bottom in the number of tests administered per person in the U.S. Yeah, that's crazy. I, th- I feel like we need to step it up, no? <laughs> I feel like we definitely need to step it up. A lack of testing stands out among the state's missteps during the coronavirus pandemic. While every state struggled, Colorado has consistently ranked among the worst in the country. And test results allow health officials to track the progress of the virus, protect vulnerable people, and plan the response. As the outbreak spread in the early days back in March, Governor Jared Polis knew he had a problem. We are doing our best Uh, to be one of the leading states, if not the leading state for testing. But scaling that up has been very frustrating and occupies a lot of my time and our operational time. But rather than leaning on his health department to scale up testing, Polis instead turned to an email marketing entrepreneur named Matt Blumberg from New York City, a guy who volunteered his time and paid his own expenses, but had no public health experience. The same day that Polis pledged to lead in testing, Blumberg texted a friend. Here's the message read by a CPR producer. I don't know what the f- I'm doing. Fortunately, I never have, and that's usually been okay. Not this time. States like Wisconsin, with a similarly sized population, have tested hundreds of thousands more people. So why did Polis turn to people outside of government to lead something so crucial? We found that the state health department's leadership had been decimated before and after COVID hit Colorado. At least 12 high-level staffers have left the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, CDPHE. Five people have left in just the last six weeks, many with disease and disaster experience. CPR News reviewed thousands of pages of emails and interviewed more than a dozen people for this story. Mark Johnson is the executive director of Jefferson County Public Health, a local agency that relies on the state health department for resources and expertise. It is concerning that we have lost uh, so many leaders in that, particularly right as we're heading into the worst pandemic we've had in 100 years. Governor Polis declined multiple requests over a month to be interviewed for this story. But the head of his public health department, Jill Hunsaker-Ryan, defended the state's COVID response, saying Colorado has a relatively low infection rate. I would say in general, um, our response to the epidemic has not been uh, affected by some people leaving the department. And Ryan says it's not at all unusual that Polis, who made a fortune in tech, looked outside of government for help. He's an entrepreneur and he wanted to... um, surround himself with innovators and um, people with business minds. But the governor's office knew about serious complaints from within the health department well before COVID hit Colorado. A group of people who say they worked there sent an email last November to Polis's chief of staff. The email warned of a, quote, brain drain. We have some grave concerns with our current executive director, Jill Ryan, 
She had very little management or true executive-level experience prior to coming to CDPHE and is quite clearly overwhelmed in her role. Previously, Ryan had run Eagle County Public Health, which is a small department. CDPHE is 1,400 people and a budget of $600 million. The email last fall was anonymous, signed, A Concerned Group of CDPHE Employees. The agency has reached a point of paralysis, where staff are confused and directionless, and partners are often left hanging. Polis's office looked into the claims and took no action. Others with firsthand experience in that department, though, say that the email reflects their experience. That includes Tony Capello, who was the state health department's original COVID incident commander. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think this, in reading this, I had not seen this specific email, but um, this is the sentiment that we've heard amongst my staff when I was there and and amongst staff. So I, I would not disagree with what I'm seeing. Capello's not there anymore. He alleges that he was fired after highlighting financial irregularities at the department before COVID. Now he's suing over his termination. Capello and his deputy, the department's two highest-ranking epidemiologists, were both gone just as coronavirus was taking off. And this is what we live for, situations like this, and so it is a shame. Ryan says she can't comment because of the litigation. After Capello left, the leader of the state lab replaced him as incident commander, just as the testing backlog is starting to balloon, and the state never caught up. But Ryan again defended the state's response. The proof's really in the pudding. I mean, um, Colorado has, you know, one of the lower incidence rates in the nation, and I think that's because of good advice, um, using data, and being really methodical both in our initial policies and in relaxing um, our restrictions. Though Colorado has the third highest rate of COVID-related deaths west of the Mississippi, and days after that interview, Polis ordered bars to shut down with cases back on the rise. In Colorado, counties partner with the state to fight the pandemic. Mark Johnson with Jefferson County Public Health noticed early on that Polis had marginalized the state health department, coinciding with the departures there. And it became apparent to us that there was not real good communication between the governor's office and the state health department, and that he was building up his own sort of subcommittees or committees that uh, were outside of the state health department in his office. Johnson says that's part of the problem with this pandemic. The locals turned to the state for help, and there was a lack of communication and leadership. When the state turned to the federal government, they said, you're on your own. So the whole system that had been built up over decades really fell apart um, right away. At precisely the time it was needed most. Five months after the pandemic arrived in Colorado, Polis last week sounded a lot like he did in March, announcing a new push for testing capacity. We know that in Colorado we can do better. And while we would all be better off, If there was a national testing strategy and effective management of supplies, uh, that's not the world we live in. So instead, we really turn to our smart, hardworking, innovative folks in Colorado. Who he says are building and expanding the very best system a state can provide on its own. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News.
When we come back, Ben joins us to talk about the investigation and the efforts to improve communication between the state and counties. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If I asked you, what was the first state to legalize marijuana? Would you say Colorado or maybe California? Try further down south. I am really proud that I can say that this little state did this. For a long time, they would say other people did it, but they didn't. We did. And it's good to be the OG. (laughs) The fascinating story of legalizing medical marijuana in America's deep south on the latest episode of On Something on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Before the break, we heard the investigation by CPR reporter Ben Marcus, who found that in the months before coronavirus hit Colorado, several high-level disease and disaster experts left the state health department. Turmoil in that department has affected county-level response to the pandemic. Ben is here to give us more perspective. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Tell us about this investigation and how it started. So we did one a couple of months ago looking at the state's response uh, in early this year. So January and February, were they preparing? Were they buying personal protective equipment? Uh, Were they scaling up systems to prepare for the coronavirus? And we found that there wasn't a lot of preparation. Um, But like any story, uh, once you publish it, suddenly a bunch of people come out and they're like, well, there's more to it. You should look into this and you should look into that. And so we were forwarded some emails that helped to open up some of this stuff. we did email uh, requests, CORA requests with the state health department. Um, we got thousands of pages from the Columbia School of Journalism um, that actually did their own CORA requests and then gave them to us for this reporting. Uh, so in the end, we had thousands and thousands of pages and two dozen interviews. And Ben, why should Coloradans care about staffing changes at the state's health agency? Yeah, it can seem a, a little esoteric, I think, but... These were high-level positions at the state health department, like the highest level, the top epidemiologists, the top disaster response experts. Uh, And we're going to dive a little bit more into these counties, right? The counties lost these liaisons, these connections that they had with the state health department. And the reason that's important is that this is a strong local control state. And so county public health has a lot of responsibility in responding to the pandemic. Um, And so losing these people made that partnership that much more difficult. So earlier, we heard your investigation into the loss of key staff at CDPHE, many with disease and disaster experience. But let's dive into those county relationships. Yeah, so uh, these three important positions uh, were lost. First, uh, in fall of last year, Anne-Marie Braga left. She had 14 years at CDPHE. The counties loved her. Um, then Deborah Monahan, who took her place, left just last month. Um, then Karen McGowan, who was the deputy executive director of the CDPHE, she left last month at, uh, as well. And I obtained this Zoom conference call from a few weeks ago. So this is July 8th, so it's not that long ago. County Public Health get together and they have have these regular conference calls, which we obtained. Um, and you'll hear they're, they're debating, they're trying to figure out who their point of contact is anymore at the state health department. And first you'll hear Tom Gonzalez in Larimer County and then Leanne Jolin in Durango. I don't think we know. I think we need to see an org chart at some point when they figure it all yeah. out. I think that's the big challenge. I, I don't know who to go to. Speaks to where we're at in a pandemic that Zoom recordings are now part of the investigation. <laughs> 
What was CDPHE's response? So Jill Hunsaker-Ryan is the executive director of CDPHE. She came from local public health. She ran Eagle County Public Health. Um, and she says she understands just how important this relationship is. I've really strived throughout this epidemic to provide concierge-level service to the local public health directors directly. So I talk to many of them several times a day. But when we obtained these Zoom conference calls between the local county public health uh, and all of the emails, we just saw a consistent level of frustration about communication with the state, with the state's leadership, with the state's response, and it spanned months. It wasn't just in the beginning when things were really chaotic. It was in May, it was in June, it was in July. So it's been a consistent problem across multiple issues in the response. Can we get more detail on what those frustrations were? What were the issues that they feel the state's not leading on? So let's talk about a big one, and that requires us to go back to to March for a moment, uh, which seems like five years ago, Um, (laughs) but it was less than four months ago, or about four months ago. Uh, The counties were pressing Governor Jared Polis and CDPHE for a stay-at-home order. Uh, The testing wasn't very good, but they had a sense that community spread was happening and they needed something drastic. Um, But they said, these counties, that they were getting no indication which way the governor or CDPHE was leaning. Here's Mark Johnson, who's the executive director of Jefferson County Public Health. All of the models said every day that you wait is thousands of cases and hundreds of deaths. So we were trying to push forward. So they're pressing CDPHE and the governor to do something. They're not getting anything. So these metro counties get together and decide to do their own local stay-at-home orders. And then after the local orders are announced, Polis then has his own statewide order that goes into effect just before Jefferson County's again as Mark Johnson. He sort of stepped in and uh, took over the leadership of it in a way that was a bit troubling to us because he didn't communicate with us. We had already announced what we were going to do, and he he really undercut or or sort of in almost a showboating manner took over. We should say that the governor's office declined to make Polis available for an interview on this story, but they did provide a statement, right? Yeah, we asked over the course of a month for an interview, um, and they did not grant one, though they did respond to written requests. And they said that the governor has to act fast to save lives. He can't always consult everyone. Um, but they said that it is getting better, um, the communication. Has the state health department gotten better at communicating with counties? Yeah, so is that true? Uh, We found the elements of this miscommunication, like I said, have stretched throughout the pandemic. Uh, Take June 2nd, Polis announces 800 contact tracers. The problem was no one at the state told the counties. Uh, Here's John Douglas at Tri-County. He said the announcement was ludicrous um, the next day after Polis had made that announcement. But I think we need to say, look, this is teachable moment. Please don't do this again. This is incredibly counterproductive to confidence building and trust enhancement. And then more recently with the statewide mask order, they said it was kind of like Groundhog Day all over again. Local counties got ahead of it because the governor wasn't doing anything. And then the governor comes in and surprises everyone with a statewide mask order. So there's a possible second wave. What can Colorado do better in advance of that? 
So they say very recently they are getting counties more involved in drafting some of these policies. Um, And one public health director I talked to said, look, this is a hundred year pandemic. It's going to stretch us in ways that we couldn't even anticipate. And we're much stronger having gone through all of this. Uh, And some of them hope that the spotlight we've shined on this fractured relationship will actually help to improve it. Ben, thanks so much for sharing this perspective and insight. Thanks for having me on. CPR's Ben Marcus is investigating Colorado's response to COVID-19 and the state's critical relationship with county-level health officials. Congressional leaders are negotiating the next and most likely last coronavirus relief package before the November election. Priorities are being staked out, including by members of the Colorado delegation. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Democrats passed a $3 trillion relief package months ago. Republicans have a framework for a $1 trillion package. The final bill will land somewhere in between, and that means some people will be left out. Here's what Republican Senator Cory Gardner says he's working on in this next coronavirus bill. Well, look, I think we need to uh, focus on three things, making sure that we address the pandemic itself, flattening the curve, stopping the spread, that we are helping individuals in need. That includes, you know, unemployment. uh, That includes getting back to work. And the third thing, of course, is keeping businesses doors open and open and getting through that together. He supports more money for the Paycheck Protection Program, more local aid and continuing unemployment help of some kind. What it looks like, uh, I think there's going to be a negotiation, but uh, the American people need help. Let's help them. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett's priorities include creation of a health force to help with testing and tracing and longer-term help for businesses to stay open. It could be expensive, but so could shutting down the economy again. The real question is, can we open and can we open in a way that allows us to stay open? Bennett says a few Coloradans have also brought up liability protection, a priority for Republican leaders. Businesses want to understand uh, what kind of guidelines we need to follow. And equally important, employees want to understand what kind of guidelines businesses are following. Part of the difficulty with negotiations is that fiscal conservatives are worried about the breadth and depth of all the spending. Representative Ken Buck, who hasn't supported any of the past bills, quipped. Is the Kennedy Center involved? The Performing Arts Center did get money last time. Some Republicans want a much more focused package this time. And that could be bad news for additional state and local aid. It's not in the Republican proposal. And that's a deal breaker for Representative Ed Perlmutter because of what it could lead to. We're going to see firefighters, law enforcement, teachers, Uh, transportation workers laid off. He's confident there will be a deal. Maybe not one that will cause backflips, but one that will help Americans. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. A 60-foot-tall portrait of Sage Deal looks out over downtown Colorado Springs. The 14-year-old wears a t-shirt from her favorite punk band, The Interrupters. A bright red handprint covers half her face. Deal's father painted the mural last week as a part of the 22nd annual Art on the Streets exhibit in Colorado Springs. It's called Take Back the Power, and its message is especially timely. He's a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe, and I'll let him introduce himself in his native language. Go ahead. Hamu, new Greg Deal, Minania. New Kiriuri Takata. Uh, my name is Greg Deal, and uh, like you said, I'm a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe. And in my native Chickasaw language, Chokma. Hello. 
You've painted this way larger than life painting of your daughter. Tell me about the visual elements that you chose to include. Um, well, first and foremost, this was meant to be uh, about the um, seemingly silent epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit um, with the red handprint. Um, but uh, uh, another aspect of this is the fact that uh, I wanted to recognize the modern existence of indigenous people with modern elements and the intersection of subcultures with uh, being an indigenous person, the duality of our existence. And so the T-shirt and the way she wears her hair and all these little small elements are meant to point in that direction as well. So let's talk about this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and LGBTQ people, because we know that they face high rates of violence in the United States. Murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women. But there's a lot that we don't know because there's inadequate data. A recent study by the Urban Indian Health Institute found that of the 5,712 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls reported in 2016, only 116 were logged in the Department of Justice database. Is there a story or an experience that brings the crisis home for you? Um, there's a, a number of things. I mean, I have two girls um, and I care about my relatives and uh, about people in my community and beyond. Um, but when I was actually working on this particular piece, um, the uh, mother of Sherry Barker, a young woman in Colorado Springs, a uh, native woman who was uh, born and raised in Colorado Springs, who was shot and killed four years ago in front of her six-year-old son, uh, came to the mural while I was working and introduced herself. Um, I, I found that to just be so incredibly overwhelming and just incredibly difficult to process in the reality of these things as it's hit uh, Colorado Springs and, um, and, and what kind of effect that's had on the indigenous community here. And what conversations have you had with your daughter, Sage, about these issues as you've painted this story's high portrait of her? We've had very frank conversations. I mean, the conversations that happen in our household are, you know, um, oftentimes different than a lot of other families because we talk about history and we talk about um, our people. We talk about language and we talk about these statistics um, as just simply the reality of our existence, that we have to navigate these things, the dehumanization of indigenous people, which is really where I think a lot of this stuff stems from. So the, the, the concepts of stereotypes and uh, mascots and, you know, things of that nature contribute to dehumanizing people. Um, and in this specific case, uh, women and girls and uh, LGBTQ plus and and that that effect is very true, that she has to uh, understand and recognize that that she's part of that statistic as she moves forward in her life uh, to protect herself. And that as I move forward as her father and uh, and of course, her mother as well to uh, protect our, our children. And like you're saying, it's part of this idea that violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are contributing forces, like the ways that Native Americans are representative in media and pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if we're never really portrayed as humans, then it becomes difficult for people to look at us as human beings. And when you look at those statistics, and it's like 86 percent um, of these uh uh, these violent acts happening towards indigenous uh, women and girls and LGBTQ 
are um, coming from outside of the community, from non-Native people. These are things that are vastly important. And so representation matters. And in this time of national reckoning over issues of racial justice and equity, how do you see your art fitting into that conversation? I think that um, Black Lives Matters, uh, and, and particularly just the conversation of um, uh, Black equity in the United States, um, that that Black people and Indigenous people are intertwined from the from the very beginning. Uh, the foundation of this country has been built upon um, stolen land from Indigenous people and uh, upon the backs uh, and and the the tortured bodies of slaves. And so I don't think you can have a conversation with one without talking about another. When they're pulling down uh, Columbus statues, you can't possibly ignore the conversation of, of indigenous people. Um, that Those conversations are happening in a way that uh, they've never, in my lifetime, I've never seen them happen in this way, um, that we can actually uphold uh, black lives as uh as being uh, just as important as any other lives in the United States, but who are at a significant disadvantage uh, statistically and otherwise. Um, But we can also talk about the way that those things intersect with our own communities that are also marginalized and also facing inequity. And this mural is painted on the side of an old brick office building. How do you think about its role as public art? You know, uh, one thing that, that I was really attracted to about doing this piece and doing it as big as it is, is um, this idea of representation, that there might be uh, a child that sees this and recognizes, you know, the face or recognizes an aspect of it of seeing themselves. Or maybe, you know, a young person sees me doing it and maybe I look like their dad. You know, there's this this level of representation that traditionally does not exist in public spaces is a, is a really empowering thing for these marginalized communities where representation is either uh, completely false or just doesn't exist at all. And so participating on that level, having a, a piece of representation in a space that is traditionally Southern Ute land, um, I think is incredibly empowering and important because, uh, like I said before, you know, representation matters. And you said before that you wanted to create modern indigenous art that isn't dictated by a Western art market. Is that representation part of how it fits into the vision? It is. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on, you know, a, a new set of uh, paintings that are portraits specifically pointing at the same sort of, uh, you know, content and philosophy and composition is what I've created with um, this piece, Take Back the Power, this idea of representing real modern living indigenous faces um, in ways that might be unexpected. And I think that that is a really important aspect of that is um, not just taking back the power in terms of the, the very important and serious issue of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and uh, two-spirit, but also taking back our identity and being able to have power over our own identity, um, which we're beginning to see. It's becoming part of the conversation uh, of the movements that are happening across the country right now. And you've touched on this. You're painting this mural, obviously, in public. Tell me more about the conversations that you had with people who stopped to watch you paint. 
most people just had uh, um, questions. Um, you know, some people just appreciate it for what it is, for its size. Um, there wasn't really anything negative that came from it, not towards me, not while I was painting. I think that uh, um, it may be, you know, one of the biggest murals um, in Colorado Springs. I know there's another one near Memphis Springs, which is right nearby, uh, by a, an artist named Al Mack. Um, but uh, to be able to have something right downtown has had sort of a reaction to it um, just in that, you know. And, and, of course, if you dive deeper into some of the comment sections, you know, on Facebook posts and things like that, you start to see some other things. Uh, but I saw nothing uh, coming to me personally other than appreciation for everything that was going on and uh, good conversation about things that people didn't really ever think about or understand or realize. Greg, thank you so much for sharing. Hey, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me. Greg Deal is a Pyramid Lake Paiute artist and activist. He lives in Peyton, Colorado. His mural of his daughter Sage, called Take Back the Power, is part of the 22nd annual Art on the Streets exhibit in downtown Colorado Springs. What's your plan for tomorrow? Are you a leader or will you follow? Are you a fighter or will you cower? It's our time. Take back the power. What's your plan for tomorrow? Are you a Our work, home, and social lives have all changed due to COVID-19 pandemic, and so has the way people become new citizens of the United States. CPR's Natalia Navarro recently attended a unique version of a naturalization ceremony. In America, we won't let a global pandemic stop us from conferring America's promises on our newest citizens. It's 8 a.m. on a Friday, and it's already approaching 90 degrees in the sun. 34 people sit in an empty stretch of parking lot in Denver in folding chairs positioned six feet apart. They're dressed in suits, colorful headscarves, sharp-looking dresses, and face masks. A few family members stand yards away by their cars, camera phones lifted to capture the moment from afar. I know you all have been waiting uh, for quite some time to take this final step in your journey in becoming an American citizen, and you were particularly impacted by the COVID... The Denver field office for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is open after being closed for almost three months due to the pandemic. Dozens of naturalization ceremonies were postponed. Danny Bowie is from Vietnam. She's been working toward becoming a citizen for six years. We have been waiting for long time to do the, the ceremony. She got her interview done in February, just before COVID-19 shut USCIS down. Typically, new citizens get to take their oath of allegiance in front of a judge as early as the same day they pass their interview. But Bowie had to wait until the middle of July. She says she doesn't mind. She's just glad it's done. So today I can say I'm American. Immigration lawyer Beatrice Lynch says her client's progress through the immigration system is taking two to three times longer these days. Some of them have been waiting for years to finally have their interview and um, get their green cards or become citizens, and it's taking a lot longer. So you can understand that it's already a hard enough time, and then to have this on top, it's frustrating. I asked Yulia Morozova how COVID and the resulting delay has affected her. First of all, it's a longer process. But it is what it is. We're going through a difficult time right now, and everything is done differently. 
Morozova first came to the U.S. 25 years ago to work as a fashion designer for a film actor. Russia was absolutely different country. The borders just opened. People sometimes ask me what was my first impression of United States. And I always says people were smiling. And this is actually what my daughter impression was when she was first back to Russia. And she said, nobody smile in Russia. Maybe do now, but not at that time. We spoke right after she was officially sworn in as a naturalized citizen. Tell me a little bit about how you feel now that you have done your ceremony. Happy crying. Happy crying? <laughs> yeah, I was crying. <laughs> Naturalization ceremonies are usually in fancy federal courthouses filled to the brim with family and friends. It's a cheerful, celebratory experience. But because of COVID, USCIS is instructing people to come to their open-air ceremonies in the parking lot alone. If I knew it was outside, at least my friends would come and stay there in the car. <laughs> but they couldn't come. Some of lawyer Beatrice Lynch's clients are at the beginning of their process of getting permanent residency and then eventually citizenship. She says that's become harder with COVID, too. Denver's immigration court has postponed these sorts of hearings until August 7th. And there's a backlog, too. Most of my clients have very difficult situations. And now many have lost their jobs and they're not able to find work. And if they don't have a, a work permit, it's almost impossible now to be able to, to find employment. Nationwide, more than 13,000 USCIS employees will be furloughed next week, leaving fewer people to process immigration papers. A department spokesperson says that's because USCIS relies on fees it charges to people who are applying, not appropriated funds. And they've seen a 50% drop in incoming fees since March. USCIS is asking Congress for $1.2 billion to close a projected budget shortfall because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The department plans to pay the federal government back by adding a 10% surcharge to future applications. It already costs more than $700 to apply for citizenship, not counting the cost of a lawyer's help filling out the complicated document. That you take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help you God. Please say, I do. All right, thank you. You may be seated and congratulations to you all. I'm Natalia Navarro, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks to the team that helps us bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Natasha Watts. And I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.